Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday visiting, uh, if you have family here maybe or whatever got you here, we're glad you guys are joining us today for church. We are uh, taking a break from our Acts series right now for two weeks. So we'll come back to Acts on January 6th. Uh, so to do some kind of Christmassy slash open mic, we call it, uh, type thing. So Highland mentioned uh, today we are going to preach essentially the lyrics, at least as a starting point, to It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. So um, it's kind of a redux from two years ago, if you happen to remember that, if you were here for that. Uh, we did two of these sermons uh, where we kind of did it kind of preaching through the carols uh, sort of theme, where we did two of these carols, and today we're going to do a third of them. So kind of a redux here. Uh, but it's a great carol, one of my favorites, and um, we're just going to use it as a starting point to get into the, into the gospel, essentially, the Christmas story, and to uh, help explore what the gospel truly is in and through the, the manger, but ultimately the cross. And so a little disclaimer here, uh, there, there, like with any kind of uh, music or art, there's an inherent sense of subjectivity to song lyrics. And so my goal is not necessarily, this is important, not necessarily to understand the song's meaning by way of the author's intention, but rather through the lens of the Bible. So we're not going to be understanding the, the lyrics through the author's intention and that lens, but rather through the lens of Scripture. And so the question will be basically like what fuller meanings present? What fuller meaning in the song is here, spiritually speaking? And we'll, uh, we'll go from there, kind of bridging back and forth between the two. So uh, Luke 2, 8 to 14 is kind of an initial text we'll look at, kind of a baseline text off of which this song was originally written. It was actually a poem to begin. The melody came later, but a poem written by Edmund Sears in the mid-1800s. So let's start with that uh, from Luke 2, 8 to 14. Actually, uh, Spence read this this morning, part of this. We'll read it again and add a couple of verses here. So Luke 2, 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. All right, so even upon just the initial reading of that, maybe you guys have uh, heard some, some of it, it came upon a midnight clear, the song lyrics in there. So this idea of angels coming at night to a group of shepherds to speak on God's behalf and announce the birth of Jesus in this glorious splendor and song. This is kind of like the, the baseline text or the context to the song or the carol that came upon a midnight clear and its scriptural context for the song as well, as I mentioned before. So now in order to preach this, though, I, I have a few questions that I'll use as starting points to help us see the gospel and the song a bit more, and so we'll kind of use these again as bridges to get to the scriptures. But it's one of those carols that, um, that I, it's a bit more abstract or at least indirect in how it gets us to Jesus, because his name's not mentioned, as you, as you saw earlier, as you know from the song, his name's not mentioned, but it was obviously present and whose gospel is central to the song itself. And so that's basically where we're headed today. If you, if you want to follow along, if you're kind of a note-taker type, there's a sermon insert in your worship folders that gives those three questions. Uh, but um, again, those are just starting points here. So the first question is, to what kind of world did the angels come? And so let me remind you of what the song says here and read the first two verses uh, from, from the carol. So, it came upon a midnight clear, 
that glorious song of old from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. Still through the cloven skies they come with peaceful wings unfurled, and still their heavenly music floats o'er all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains, they bend on hovering wing, and ever o'er its babble sounds, the blessed angels sing. All right, so if the question is to what kind of world did the angels come, there's uh, two, two answers I want to especially highlight. There's probably more, but two answers I want to especially highlight here within the first two verses. And the first is this. The angels came to a babel-like earth. And so the angels, as, as the song says here, are singing over the earth's babel sounds, uh, to quote directly from it, over the earth's babel sounds. And so we've actually already been talking about this in our Acts series, if you guys have been here for that. Just a few weeks ago, this came up already, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to preach this particular carol. But what's being referred to here with babel sounds is the Tower of Babel incident from Genesis 11, 1 to 9. When, just to remind you of that story or tell you for the first time if, you're, um, if you haven't read it yet, it's when all of humanity was united in defiance to God and seeking to put on display, this is a key idea, seeking to put on display the works of their hands and climb to heaven by way of this large tower they were building. And so the key phrase there is works of the hands. There's a lot of things going on in this, in this story, but the key phrase is that, that humanity was putting on display the works or the efforts of their, of their hands and their minds, kind of like coalescing that or, or combining them all together and putting them on display before God and, and the rest of the world. So the key here is that God is not, the key phrase is works of the hands, because God is not against beautiful architecture, but he is against works-based righteousness. That is something God is clearly against throughout all of the scriptures. He's against works-based righteousness, which is a type of pride that seeks to self-justify and self-deify and save oneself based on religious merits or inherent goodness. And that's what's going on in Genesis 11. And that's what's going on here as well, spiritually speaking, in the song. And so back to Genesis 11, what he does in the story is he actually descends to see it, to see this tower that they're building, and he confuses their language so they can't talk to each other anymore and finish the project. So there's, there's actually mercy in that. There's judgment too. There's, there's judgment happening because God's upset about it. But there's also a lot of mercy in that he just didn't, he kind of caused them to stop doing this. But ever since, languages have existed because they didn't exist before this. There's only one language in the whole earth before this incident. But after, after that and all the way up to today, languages have existed that have divided people from each other and people from God. And so what, what the song is saying then is it's over, or from above this is happening, the angels come, and it's over this kind of world that the angels sing this song. It's a Babel-like, confused, divided world and it's a world under the judgment of seeking to save themselves by the works of their hands. So it, it's confused, it's, it's divided, people, we can't understand each other, so there's, there's problems here on the earth, there's problems with God as well, there's division between us and him, but there's also this judgment over all the earth, this Babel sound-like judgment of people seeking to save themselves by the works of their hands in defiance to the good grace of God and mercy of God and provision and, and providence of, of our creator. So this is a very sobering, but it's a great picture of the state of humanity that Jesus came to interrupt 
and save us from. And, and so we say Jesus came broadly. We've, already, we've sung this this morning. We've talked about this morning already. But Jesus came to save us from our sins. But among other things, that is seeking salvation and meaning and happiness apart from him. That's a great definition of sin. Seeking salvation and happiness and meaning apart from him. It was happening in the very beginning in Genesis 3. It, happened, it was happening here in Genesis 11 where people are like, we don't need God. Look at how intelligent and, and strong and wise we are. Look at, how, look at our architectural minds and savvy. Look what we can do. We don't need him. So God came into the world to interrupt that way of thinking and in that way save us from our sins. This is this great backdrop against which the song continues and against which the gospel sort of continues in the Bible and, and into the world and into our lives. We'll, we'll see that. All right, so the angels came to a, a world that was having these babble sounds occur. The second thing is, uh, from the first two verses, is the angels came to a solemn and still earth. And so th- those are a couple of great words as well, but when, when you hear that phrase, or when you sing it, when you hear solemn and still, what do you guys think of? On one level, I think this, is, this just means sadness and despair. Sadness comes up a little bit later in the song as well, so... On one level, I think this just means sadness and despair, or maybe even more benign, just quiet, as if uh, we were uh, just waiting for God. Luke 2 kind of hits on this, but, but the whole world is just sort of waiting for him. And Highland talked about that before that last song as well. Waiting for the, the advent or the arrival of God into the world, kind of in the backdrop of the prophets and, and so forth, and promises of God. But on another level, when I hear the phrase, solemn and still, I hear death. The ultimate form of solemn stillness, because in one sense, what is more still than a corpse? And note that it says here, we lay still, so we're lying down still and solemn again as though we were dead. Ephesians 2 picks up on this in the Bible. It says to the Christian past tense, because this isn't true anymore for those who believe in the gospel, who who trust in Jesus, but, but still, you were dead in your sins. Or we could rephrase that here with, the, the lyrics of the song in mind and say, you were solemn, you were laying solemn and still in your sins. You were laying there still dead as a corpse in your sins. And so at this point in, in the carol, and then this is all the bad news section of, of the song, but even with that said, we're already getting these glimpses, these glaring demonstrations actually of grace. And the Bible agrees. At, at Christmas, it's as if God is descending again towards a tower of Babel but this time, it's not with judgment, it's with joyous singing and hope. It's almost like he's, God is coming down to a graveyard and having his angels sing lullabies and joyous songs over the corpses and bones. That's what the song is getting at. And that's clearly what the Bible is, is getting at. When Christmas occurs, when Christmas is happening, it's not judgment anymore, it's hope, but it's spoken over corpses and bones and graveyards and dead things like us. And so, full of hope, but it, but it gets even better, or at least it continues. So let's keep reading. The second question is, how are we personally addressed? So if the first question is, to what kind of world did the angels come? And of course, we're in the world, and so we've kind of already been talking about this, but the third verse of the song uh, heightens it, and it addresses us kind of uh, just more directly anyway. So let's read this third verse. O ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. 
Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. So how are we personally addressed? As people whose forms are bending low. Again, this is kind of like uh, one of those former phrases. This is a very sobering but really helpful and great imagery in terms of how it helps us understand the state of human affairs before a holy God. So we're addressed as ones who are bending low, who are heavy laden, who are crouched over and weighed down. And all this reminded me of Leviticus 26.13 in the Old Testament where God says, and he says this all over the place, this is just one great example of it, but where God says to Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke, and this is, this is the key phrase, and made you walk upright. This is a direct, so this, this whole thing here and, and in context, this is a direct reference to the Exodus event in the Old Testament when God saved Israel around 1400 B.C. from slavery in Egypt, which later in the story becomes this symbol and paradigm for salvation through Jesus, who saves us from spiritual slavery to sin. That's this big connection the Bible makes between the two Exoduses of Scripture. And so it's interesting the song uh, touches on this here. It's actually really easy to miss, but it reminds us lyrically that God's Son will save us from being enslaved to our sins, that a new exodus is coming, a new redemption, a new like movement from God, uh, uh, from us kind of being kind of crouched over, hunched low, or, or bent low under our sins to walking upright now in, free, in freedom, not being yoked anymore by, by sins. And so that's what the, the promise here is, the angels are announcing this, is he will save us from this, this state, from being bent low, under the weight of sin, so that we might walk upright in the freedom of his mercy and love. It's just a great image. And so, so the idea here then is that some of us, and when you hear this song, maybe you're thinking physically, and that's, that's totally fine, that's actually appropriate. Some of us in the room right now are bending low physically. We're weighed down by things. But all of us are bending low spiritually. And so it, it, in, in one sense, when the angels come, they come to speak to the whole world. Some people... Some of the shepherds even maybe who first heard this message or some others who were first right there were bending low physically, but all of them were bending low spiritually. And like God did physically in the Old Testament, they, they needed to be sort of liberated and, and taken the yoke off of their neck, so to speak, so they could like walk upright and, and be free and dance around and leap like we saw last week with the cripple being healed and rejoice and praise God and, and not be crushed anymore by our sins and, and by the law, which we'll get to here in, uh, next, actually. So, so that's the first thing. So we're addressing people whose forms are bending low, which reminds us of the Exodus. The second piece, the second angle, and the second question is, as people who are toiling and climbing and who need to stop that and rest. And so the quick idea here that the song helps us remember biblically is that the coming of Jesus into the world means rest, not more work. The coming of Jesus into the world means rest, not trying harder or more work. So the song, like the Bible, moves us then from Babel, from the works of our hands, so from working and striving and performing, trying to prove ourselves and things like painful steps, to a place of rest. And this again heightens the idea of grace, right? It's saying, it's saying to us, rest because Jesus came. Stop working because Jesus came. Look because Jesus came. Receive because Jesus came. Watch and listen because Jesus came. 
or in the song, Rest Beside the Weary Road, while Jesus himself walks that very road, carrying his cross all the way to Calvary to die for you. See, in the gospel, there's one road walker, and it's Jesus. And he has a cross on his back, and he's going with a bloody body already because he's been, his back's been torn open by a flagellum, and he's wearing a, he's wearing a crown of thorns. He's already bloody, but he walks that road. He works for us, and we rest beside it and watch the power of God and the salvation of God and the mercy of God and the love of God perform or act or work for us. And again, the song beautifully, poetically helps us remember this, or maybe to hear that for the first time. The coming of Jesus into the world means rest, not more work. And Jesus himself says this in Matthew 11, all of you who are weary and burdened in spirit, so, so he says, come to me, invites people to come to him, and he says, I will give you rest, but not just a physical rest, he says, a rest for your souls. So the invitation even of, of Jesus in his ministry, before he even dies, he starts to, to talk in these terms and uh, essentially sing these kind of, of carols as well with his teachings. All right, and the third, a third section is, what's the good news then? So we've already been talking about this, but what's the good news kind of a per verse four? So why exactly are we called to rest? So let's keep talking about this, um, this idea of Jesus working for us. From ver- I'll read verse four again here to, to remind you of, of what it says. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old, when with the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold. When peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and all the world give back the song which now the angels sing. All right, so a couple of passages here. One primarily that kind of pulls off of this idea of shall come the time foretold, and before that, by prophets seen of old. It's a great Christmas verse. Galatians 4, 4 to 5, we read it every year. It's part of our readings as a church on Sundays. We already did it this month, but Galatians 4, 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, so just to re- kind of rephrase that a little bit here to walk through it. It says, when the fullness of time came, in other words, when the time for prophetic fulfillment was upon us, or to pull from the carol, when God essentially says, enough, this is the time now, when I'm going to send my son into the world to fulfill all the promises before this and all the scriptures and events and types and foreshadowings and look-aheads to the Christ event, he sent forth his son, born of woman, it says, which is interesting, right? Not man, because he wasn't born of man. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived of by the Spirit inside of a virgin, a woman. So born of woman, not born of man, but born of woman. Born under the law. So the idea there is born under the commandments, born under the Old Testament. And and I think under the weight of the indictment and punishment of the law as well. That's a loaded phrase. So when it says born under the law, we need to think, what did the law do to Israel in the Old Testament? What does it do to us? It's unkeepable. It's good, but it crushes us. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it actually kills us. But God's Spirit makes us live. And so Christ was born like into that or made under it to redeem those under the, under the curse of the law as well. And then the final so that is so that we might receive adoption as sons. So 
it's classic substitutionary language. Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to sort of bear the curse of the law because we were under the curse of it as well. It exposed our sins, made sin bigger. It exposed the problem being us, not out there, but in here. Christ was born under that or kind of towards it to deal with it so that we might become what he was to God, towards God, like a son, and share in his sonship and become family with God, not outcasts anymore or crushed ones or exiled ones or ones sentenced to death or even like we saw before, they wouldn't be dead anymore. You know, the, Jesus addresses death. He addresses not just a couple of mistakes we made a long time ago, but he addresses the state of being corpses or like Ezekiel 37 says or shows beautifully in the Old Testament like we're part of that valley of dry bones. You guys have read that before. Like we're part of this state of being just skeletons in a dry deathbed valley and we need God to speak into that which Ezekiel does, God through Ezekiel and, and they, they come to life. That's exactly what happens through the gospel and Christ's first and, but especially um, his, his cross, but his first advent into the world. Luther highlights this as well when he, uh, he comments actually on this, Martin Luther in the 16th century, commented on these, actu- these, these very verses, but this actual phrase, born under the law, it's very helpful, so read this. He says, the words, Christ was made under the law, are worth all the attention we can bestow upon them. They declare that the Son of God did not only fulfill one or two easy requirements of the law, but that he endured all the tortures of the law. The law brought all of its fright to bear upon Christ until he experienced anguish and terror such as nobody else ever experienced. His bloody sweat, his need of angelic comfort, his tremulous prayer in the garden, his lamentation on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All bear eloquent witness to the sting of the law. He suffered to redeem those who were under that same state or who were under the law. So this is helpful. So going back to Galatians 4, which again pulls from the Christmas carol, it came upon a midnight clear. This is the peace that's at the heart of Christmas. Jesus was sent to bear the curse of the unkeepable commandments and law, to bear our sin, in other words, so that we might be adopted. So the result of his horrific death is peace with him. Christmas is, and I think Colin was talking about this earlier, Christmas is not first and foremost a call to world peace. It's not first and foremost a call to global humanitarianism. It's hope, rather, that the peace, the peace we can have now with, between like, sinners and God, the peace we can have with God as sinners, that's possible. Or from this perspective in history, will soon be possible because his death hasn't occurred yet. Or to put it another way, that we'll be able to speak his language again, to kind of pull from that Babel imagery, it's hope that we'll be able to speak his language. Or better yet, that he chose to speak our language and tell us that he loves us all the way to hell and back. Don't take for granted that God spoke your language, that he, he took on, I mean, we have these English Bibles, this is insane. This is like the, the antithesis of Babel right here, that we can read this book. It, it is the complete opposite, the 180 of the Babel incident. The fact that he took on everything, that he bore our sin, but in that, that he chose to speak our language and and say that this is how much I love you, God says. I'm not withholding my one and only son, but I'm giving him up for you that he might suffer instead of you, that he might be crushed, that he might be bent low 
so that you, bent low ones, might be able to walk upright. Again, textbook substitutionary language. If you've never heard the gospel before, Christ substituted himself. It's the, it's the epitome of love. He did something for us, but it wasn't just like doing something or like being good for us. It was that he accomplished something for us through his own suffering. He said, I'll take the blow. I'll take the brunt. I'll be made under the law so it can have its way with me. But don't touch my people. It's almost like he's a standoff there with sin, a standoff with death, a standoff with the devil, a standoff with, with sin in our hearts, and a standoff with what the law was doing in the world. It couldn't be kept. It was exposed, making the problem worse. And so Jesus says, you can have me, but not them. This is what the God of the universe, you guys, has said to you and about you and about me. You can't touch them, but you can have your way with me. That's the gospel. Jesus is the end of Babel-like division on, on every level imaginable and, and, and beyond that. It's also why, going back to Luke 2 for a second, the angels, and I'll, I'll, this will be kind of our last text here, but there's, there's a lot, this again is a te- kind of a, it's a starting point of sorts. It's a, it's a text that Edmund, Edmund Sears used, but it's one that really um, kind of signifies the carol. But going back to Luke 2, the angels use words like, don't fear. One of the more common phrases you see in association with Jesus' birth is don't be afraid. They were afraid, right? But then he, the angels say, but don't fear because of, because Jesus, because he's coming. Don't fear, and also words like savior. So one who saves from something. And the phrase good news. And even the word sign in referring to a baby lying in a manger. Sign is an interesting word for this whole thing. It means that the thing itself points beyond itself to something else. That's what sign means. So the fact that Jesus was born in a manger and the baby himself is a sign. So not just, like a, not just a thing, not just a fulfillment of God's promises, but it's actually a sign pointing to something else. And so the question then is, how, how is that the case, right? Or how is a baby lying in a manger a sign? And I think two things. So one is his birth, and uh, the, the song gets at this as well, I think, or maybe I think it's a different carol, actually, but, um, but the text did, certainly, Luke 2. His birth is in the city of David, and that was predicted. So that's actually a prophecy from the Old Testament that was predicted centuries before. So the locale then of the manger was a sign that the prophets were right or that God was right through the prophets and that the time was upon them. So in that sense, it's a sign. But I think also a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. So when you think of manger, we have very clean ones like in the little models that we have in our houses sometimes. But think like feeding trough for animals. Think... Um, you know, and that, I think, was a sign of God's good news because it was, was a sign of all that mangers really kind of were. And it was a sign of Jesus' future association with it. So in other words, it was a sign of Jesus' future association with lowliness. So like us, again, going back to the carol, whose forms are bended low, right, as the carol says, and that even as a baby then, this is, I think, this is a signification here as well, that even as a baby... His physical contact with animal saliva and hair and dirt and germs pointed us ahead to a time when he would have spiritual contact with the germs of our sins. 
And also that being laid in a wooden manger would signify a time when he would be laying on wood again, but this time a wooden cross for the sins of the world. And so basically what you have in the manger is you have um, a baby, Jesus, being laid on wood, being associated with germs and dirt and lowliness and hair and animal saliva. And later in his life, Jesus was laid once again on wood, but this time it was a different kind of germs. And there are physical germs there as well, of course, but a different kind of germs, the germs of our sins, the germs of our separation from God, which is the true, that's actually the, the true disease that can, only, that can really ultimately harm us, right? It's not ultimately physical things, it's spiritual things. And so the former uh, predicted and was a sign of the latter. All right, a couple of final words here on Christmas humility, I'm going to call it. So um, the, the angels, so from Luke 2 and from the Christmas carol, the angels announced on God's behalf what? What did they announce? They announced a birth, right? What did they not announce? They didn't announce any laws, no commandments, no lists, right? And they actually did that earlier in the story. Angels were mediators of the Old Testament. They, they were and the, the Jews, actually Galatians 3 gets at this, and Hebrews 2, I think. So a couple places in the Bible talk about this, but it was tradition as well uh, to, to, to believe and sort of see that angels were sort of the givers of the law in a way. Moses was, it was through Moses, but angels were there. And so angels are associated with like the, the, the announcement or sort of the, the giving of two kinds of mediatorial things in the Bible. First, the law, which didn't work, it condemned, it brought death, but now it's not that. Angels are again coming to announce, but it's the announcement of a birth, not the law. Not try harder, but rest. Not it's up to you to mediate yourselves to God or to stay in covenant with him, but, but now this birth is going to somehow pass up and replace that old system. And so the birth itself will be, and what it's going to signify and, and point to, namely the cross, will be the thing that will mediate sinners and, and God. So, the angels announce on God's behalf a birth, not a list of laws. And the humbling message to them then, and the shepherds and the world watching, and to us, so was and is, you need this Jesus. And that's, that is a, um, it's always humbling to hear you can't do it, right? You can't do it, or like the statement, you need someone else to do it for you entirely. It's never a super like, happy, oh, awesome, like I feel better about myself now or something. But, but that's basically what, what, what's being held out to the shepherds here and, and to all of Israel, but all of the world, is you need this baby. So to look at a baby and hear that, I mean, how would you just sort of take Jesus out of the picture for a second and think, what if someone like put a baby before you and said, you need this baby for everything in your life? Like, think of what that would have been like to be a shepherd there and to kind of basically get that message. Like, you need this infant who can't do anything to save you, to be everything for you, right? To deliver you. That's a really humbling thing. And so, of course, he, you know, the, the story goes on here. It's not just about the manger. It's about what happens later. He grows up to be, if possible, even more human, to associate with us and to die as an advocate for us. But, but to hear this message, looking at an infant and saying, you know, hearing God's voice through it, and the whole events and the prophecies surrounding it saying, you can't do it. You need someone else to do it for you entirely. You need my son. There has to be humility sort of just, I mean, intermingled with and wrapped tightly around the idea of Christmas or we miss the point entirely. God is saying, the song helps us here, 
but the scriptures especially just shout this. God is saying to us, you need me to do everything for you. Everything. The good news is, I'm willing. So do you believe this? And I'm not just talking like vaguely or kind of abstractly here. I mean specifically in this room. This is partly what God has for us through Luke 2 is do you believe that you need God for absolutely everything in your life and there's nothing good that will ever come from our lives apart from his saving grace? Like Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Is that hyperbole? It's not. It's like everything. He's the vine, we're the branches, right? So branches can't live without the, the nourishing sustenance of the vine and the root. And so he is the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And it's a loving, humbling, but loving thing to hear this right? So when, when a baby is held out, when Jesus is held out, what God is saying to us is, I, the, the, bad, the, the humbling news is you can't do anything apart from him. The good news is God is saying, I'm willing to do everything for you. Rest beside the weary road and watch my son walk the road to Calvary wearing the cross on his back. He will do the, literally the heavy lifting there, right, in that moment. But figuratively speaking as well, he will carry your sins all the way to Golgotha, all the way to Calvary, all the way to that final hill where he died outside the city among criminals, shamefully, being mocked and spit on and pierced and ridiculed. But he did it for us. And the manger typifies this. It's, it is a, a, like all of the Old Testament, it's a whisper and a hint of what's coming later. It is like an old, actually in this moment when Jesus was born, this is still Old Testament time. This is not the New Testament yet. The New Testament does not begin until Jesus dies on the cross because blood has to be spilt for that New Testament to begin. Right? When, when communion is established, when Jesus is saying, I'm making a New Testament with, kind of for the world now, but with you, and, and I'm establishing that, he's doing it at the communion table talking about his death and, and his eventual resurrection, but especially his death. The manger is not New Testament. It's Old Testament. So in that sense, it's, it's serving the same purpose as the Old Testament, looking ahead, not being a final sort of uh, depiction or a final word behind what God's doing in the world. He's not just coming into the world to hang out and to teach us and to say, live like me. He came into the world to do what the manger was whispering, and that is to be laid on wood, to be associated with dirt, and filth, and ultimately, our transgression and wickedness. So in that sense, it's prophetic, it's forward-looking, and if we miss this, we miss the whole point of Christmas. Christmas is like, at best, it's like a whisper of these things. The cross is a shout, but Christmas is a whisper. So Easter's the shout, that's coming later, but Christmas is, is just a hint, it's a whisper, it's a look ahead. And again, a huge part of that message that I need to hear, we all need to hear every single, and every day, but Christmas is great for this, is this is a humbling, God-glorifying thing. We are insufficient. The law exposes that, but Jesus makes that resoundingly clear when he dies on the cross for us. And so, let that disarm you. Let that humble you afresh. I, you know, pride, this, this is one of the greatest threats. We talk this, about this a lot here because the Bible does, but it's, it's a big part of our culture. Pride mixed with good works will keep you from salvation. Pride over your good works. Not talking about bad things. That's another story. That's part of it. But pride mixed with good works will keep you from Jesus. Because what need do you have for him if you're a good person? 
if you're self-sufficient, if you can make a tower that reaches into the sky called Babel. What need do you have of him, right? It's all the same story. God is constantly and continually against and sending his son into the world to confront the idea that we're okay in ourselves, that, that we, with our good works, are tower builders, that with the works of our hands, we, are, we, we can show off. This is, the, this, is the, this is the story that sort of undergirds the gospel idea, uh, undergird just by meaning it's kind of the dark backdrop against which it shines all the brighter, or it sort of precedes it or sets the stage for it, but it's the thing that Christmas combats. The announcement of the angels combats. The cross and the empty tomb combats. So instead, again, to point back to the first couple of verses of the song, here's what we need to think. Jesus came into the world to sing over corpses like me and raise me up. To sing lullabies over corpses like me and raise me up. Apart from the law, not to reward me for my own good works. And so it says to us, stop laying bricks in your own Tower of Babel and instead give back the song the angels sing, which was, peace to all with God because of this Jesus. Peace with God, Romans 5.1 says. Peace with God now for all those who are saved by Jesus. This Jesus who took painful steps for us to his death and who was crushed and bent low, bent low for us bent low ones. That's the gospel at Christmas and, and every day. So let me pray and we'll sing a couple of last songs to close, one of which will be, it came upon a midnight clear one more time. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you, for, thank you for this song, but thank you especially for your word uh, that reminds us of just how terrible things were. Not just bad, but full of death and corpses and rotten bones and stench. That, that is us. That is the world that the angels came to sort of sing over. It was a Babel sounds kind of world. It was a still and lame, solemn and still kind of world. It's to that world that you came, and, but you didn't pronounce judgment this time. You pronounced, you pronounced joy. You pronounced peace. You pronounced hope. And it all had to do with, with Jesus as a baby who would, who would grow up and, and die in our place, Father. So um, thank you for becoming human. You became what we are so you could actually die as one of us. The incarnation there is critical. If you didn't become like us, you couldn't die for us. God became human. Didn't, didn't like look like human or kind of like appear like human, but the Bible says he became flesh or he actually became human for us without losing anything of what he was. So the Son of God became human to advocate, to die for, to substitute himself for, born under law, to, to save those of us who are being crushed by it so that we might become part of God's family, adopted as sons, liberated, walking upright, not bent low anymore, but worshiping the one who was crushed and bent low in our place uh, so that we uh, might be, again, liberated and adopted. Thank you for that gospel uh, at Christmas and every day. Uh, we praise you and help us to believe that more and to be saved, not just from our bad things, but from the good things that we do that... Um, we think are to our credit, or we do in place of you, like the nations did in Genesis 11. Um, they didn't need you because they were, they were pretty great. They were pretty self-sufficient. Forgive us for that mindset and those kind of works of our hands mentalities that Christmas uh, is the opposite of. It, it is the epitome of grace and the antithesis of um, self-righteousness. 
So thanks again, God, for our church and for uh, this week, and um, help us to have hope. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.